Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode contains discussions of triggering topics such as rape and stalking. In Baton Rouge, Louisiana, a sinister serial killer named Derek Todd Lee lurked the streets for 11 years, from 1992 to 2003. In those 11 years, he would be known in the press as the elusive Baton Rouge serial killer, and he would go on to kill seven women. His creepy and disturbing past of stalking women went overlooked for years by police because they initially believed that the Baton Rouge serial killer had to be white. It would take DNA evidence to finally prove Lee's connection to seven women's murders and possibly more. I'm your host, Nisa. Welcome to the Lost Crimes Library. Let's examine the menacing history of serial killer Derek Todd Lee. was born on November 5, 1968, in St. Francisville, Louisiana, a small town located north of Baton Rouge. He was raised in St. Francisville by his mother, and he was one of many children. As one of 13 siblings, it was possible that from a young age, Derek Lee felt invisible or overlooked. The downward spiral of his life seemed to happen prematurely. According to WAFB reporting for Baton Rouge, Mental illness ran in his family, affecting Lee's father and Lee's two aunts. His father reportedly suffered from bipolar disorder and psychosis. This meant that it was largely up to Derek Lee's mother to raise her children on her own. Being a single mother isn't easy, and you can't be everything to everyone all the time. So that often means that something or someone could slip through the cracks. Derek Todd Lee wasn't the best student in school. He was placed in special education classes, and it is reported that Lee had an IQ of 65. Anything below 69 is deemed extremely low. By the 11th grade, Lee decided to drop out of school. With his newfound free time, Lee's life quickly became filled with creepy and illegal choices. Derek Todd Lee classified himself as a loner, but his reputation was more than that. He definitely wasn't one of those loners who stuck to themselves and got lost in their own world. He was a loner who was looking for a connection in all the wrong places. And when I mean looking, I mean it literally. You see, 
Lee was a peeping Tom, and virtually everyone in his neighborhood knew it. According to the Chicago Tribune, Derek Todd Lee was arrested multiple times in his life for voyeurism, stalking, and burglary. In 1998, Derek Todd Lee married Jacqueline Sims, and together they had two children. From my understanding, along with his wife, Lee also maintained a relationship with his long-term girlfriend, Cassandra Green, whom he occasionally lived with. This relationship with Cassandra Green turned volatile in 2000, when Lee attacked his girlfriend at a local lounge in Louisiana. Derek Lee was convicted of fleeing from officers when they arrived to arrest him. According to the Associated Press, Lee was sentenced to two years in prison for this. Some believe that Lee's killing spree started before that 2000 attack. Over the years, Derek Todd Lee had been mentioned in the connection to the disappearance of a woman named Connie Warner. Connie vanished from her home in Zachary, Louisiana in August 1992. At the time, Andre Burgos, who was the former boyfriend of Connie's teenage daughter, claimed to witness a man who looked like Derek Todd Lee watching the family's home sometime before Connie Warner's disappearance. Weeks after her disappearance, Connie's badly decomposed body was found nude in a local drainage ditch. While Derek Todd Lee was considered a suspect in Connie Warner's case, no charges were ever filed against him. Also, there was no evidence police could find that tied Lee to this crime. According to Zachary, Louisiana Police Chief David McDavid, who spoke to Louisiana's Advocate newspaper in 2016, quote, We believe in our heart that he killed Connie, but we can't prove it, end quote. And that seems to be a common theme in cases where Lee is named a suspect. Over the years, Lee's name is mentioned in many open cases, but the path toward proving his culpability with concrete evidence seems riddled with obstacles. In 1993, Derek Todd Lee was named as another suspect in the assault of a young couple in a Zachary, Louisiana graveyard. The couple was sitting alone in their car when they were randomly attacked by a man with a machete. The attack was so intense that the suspect nearly severed one of the victim's feet. Years later, Michelle Chapman, who survived the attack, was able to pick Lee out of a police photo lineup. However, by this point, the statute of limitations for the crime expired. Again, police were confident that Lee was responsible for another attack. And again, Lee was just out of reach. In April 1998, a 28-year-old woman named Randy May Brewer was abducted from her own home. When police arrived at the scene, what they found made their stomachs sink. When they pull into the subdivision where Randy lived, they realize that they have been here before. Not for Randy, but for Connie Warner's disappearance. You see, Randy Maybrewer lived in the same subdivision as Connie Warner. What are the chances that two women would be abducted from their own homes in the same subdivision? And more so, what are the chances that these two abductions weren't related? As crime scene investigators and technicians entered Randy's home, they found clear signs of a struggle. There was even a trail of blood winding through her home. Over the years, police grew confident that Randy had been murdered, and they were even more confident that Lee had something to do with it. However, as of today, Randy Maybrewer's body has never been found. Louisiana police make a huge connection between the Warner, Chapman, and Maybrewer cases. When they looked back at the evidence at the crime scenes, they noticed something interesting. It's not what they find, but it's what they don't find that intrigues officers. 
they noticed that at each crime scene, something was missing and that whoever attacked these victims kept it as a trophy. Louisiana police realized that the killer was taking the keys of the victims and keeping them as trophies or souvenirs. This was a major breakthrough because the only people who keep trophies of murder victims are serial killers. The FBI distinguishes between souvenirs and trophies. Apparently, a souvenir is an item used to fuel a fantasy, while a trophy is taken as proof of the killer's skill. However, the end game is basically the same. It allows killers to feel powerful and relive their crimes as a fantasy, making it a fetish object. According to Nicole Mott, the author of Encyclopedia of Murder and Violent Crime, a trophy becomes a part of a killer's murder ritual. The realization that the killer was keeping trophies meant that these cases were obviously connected and that their number one suspect, Derek Todd Lee, was most likely the killer. He was named in the first two cases, one of which took place in the subdivision of the third case. Unfortunately, this newfound information didn't mean that Lee would be apprehended. They still needed concrete, beyond a reasonable doubt proof that Derek Todd Lee was the killer. A few years later, on September 24, 2001, 40-year-old nurse Gina Wilson-Green was found murdered in her home on Stanford Avenue near Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. When police examined the scene, they noticed that Gina's purse and cell phone were missing. The police were left to wonder, was it possible that Gina was the casualty of a burglary, or did her killer want it to appear that way? While at the scene, they also took DNA evidence from the scene back to the Louisiana State Police Crime Lab to be analyzed. While the DNA evidence was being analyzed, the autopsy report was being made. When it came back, it showed that Gina was raped and that she died from strangulation. After her murder, Gina's ex-husband was initially questioned by the police, but he was eventually cleared. Although the couple had split, they remained good friends up until her death. Gina even confided in her ex-husband that she felt uneasy about her new living arrangements as a single woman living alone. According to her ex-husband, Mark, Gina had told him and her mother the week before she was murdered that she thought someone was watching her. When Mark was notified of her murder, he said he was shocked because Gina was fastidious about her security and safety. According to her ex-husband, Gina was extremely careful, almost to the point of being paranoid about turning her alarm system on. She even had pepper spray stationed at nearly every window in the house. Unfortunately, at the time of the attack, Gina's alarm system was not activated. After her murder, the police had no named suspects in her case. This may be due to the fact that Gina's ex-husband told police that he thought her killer may have been a painter who had threatened the both of them recently. However, weeks later, Gina's lost cell phone was located in the alley on Choctaw Street in Baton Rouge. At this point, Derek Todd Lee was not considered a suspect in the murder of Gina Wilson-Green. The following year, on January 14, 2002, Darren DeSoto walked into an unimaginable horror. He found his 21-year-old wife, Geraldine DeSoto, lying in a pool of her own blood in their Baton Rouge home. At the time of her murder, Geraldine was enrolled as a student at LSU and was planning to attend graduate school in the fall of 2002. On the morning of her murder, Geraldine had scheduled a job interview that same day. She needed the job to pay for graduate school. Unfortunately, she never made it to the interview. 
the autopsy of Geraldine showed that she had been raped, beaten, and stabbed to death. There was also significant DNA evidence that was collected from the crime scene. Just like in Gina Wilson-Green's case, the police quickly grew suspicious of her husband. The fact that police were focused on Geraldine's husband and the fact that her manner of death was different from the other victims that Lee was considered a suspect in, Derek Todd Lee was not initially linked to Geraldine's murder. Gina Wilson-Green and Geraldine DeSoto weren't the only victims that were killed near the LSU campus between 2001 and 2002. There was another young woman who would be found dead in her apartment on May 31, 2002. 22-year-old Charlotte Murray Pace's body was found by her roommate in their Charlotte apartment in Baton Rouge. The scene her roommate walked into was absolutely gruesome. Charlotte was stabbed over 80 times by her killer, and she was raped. Defensive wounds found during the autopsy showed that Charlotte had put up a fierce fight against her attacker. Charlotte Murray Pace, before her murder, was said to become the youngest student at LSU history to receive a master's degree in business administration. And according to her roommate, a week before her murder, they had moved from a rental home on Stanford Avenue. This is the same street that Gina Wilson Green lived on and where she was eventually murdered. Again, it is possible that Derek Todd Lee wasn't initially named a suspect in a murder like the others because Charlotte's manner of death was very different from those he was previously linked to. Or, it could have been another reason, like the fact that an FBI offender profile that was made suggested that the killer was a white man between the ages of 25 to 35. I think that the original FBI offender profile could have been largely based on the race of the victims thus far. You see, the victims were white, and from my binge-watching days of Criminal Minds, I've learned that most killers don't kill outside of their race. And apparently, TV doesn't always feed us lies. Because according to the U.S. Department of Defense, between 1980 to 2008, 84% of white victims were killed by white offenders, while 93% of black victims were killed by black offenders. This means that most homicides in the U.S., especially during this time, were intraracial, so the chances of a black serial killer murdering white women seemed unlikely to police, which must have been a key factor in their makeup of the FBI offender profile. But in July 2002, a witness identification from the survivor of an attempted rape and murder sets the police on a new path toward catching a serial killer. On July 9th, 2002, in St. Martin Parish, a woman by the name of Diane Alexander was home alone when a man knocked on her door. When Diane opened the door, a black man was standing on the other side, asking to use Diane's phone because he was lost. When the man discovered that Diane's husband wasn't home, he forced his way into her home and attempted to rape her. As she fought back, the man repeatedly beat her and choked her with a telephone cord. Thankfully, Diane's adult son came home and interrupted the attack saving his mother's life. When Diane's son could be heard pulling into the driveway, the attacker quickly fled the scene. Her son walked into the house to find his mother lying in a pool of blood, badly beaten and barely hanging on. Diane Alexander survived the brutal attack, and five days later, she was able to help the police put together a composite sketch of the offender. And when police identified the person in the sketch, it was Derek Todd Lee. This meant that police were going after the wrong FBI offender profile. All this time, they assumed that their killer was a white male, but Derek Todd Lee was a black male. The identification of Lee may have come too late, because on July 12, 2002, 
Pamela Kinnamore was kidnapped from her Baton Rouge home. The 44-year-old mother, wife, and business owner was abruptly snatched from her own home, beaten, raped, and her throat was cut. When investigators searched her home for evidence, they found no signs of forced entry, and they believed that the killer either came into the home through an open window or a door that Pamela let him through. Her body was discovered four days after she went missing. It was found concealed under bushes about 20 miles away from Baton Rouge in an area called Whiskey Bay. And just like the other murders, police noticed that some of her belongings were missing, like her silver toe ring, which police believed was taken as a trophy. You are probably wondering why this man has yet to be arrested by police. After all, don't they have the composite sketch that survivor Diane Alexander gave? That's true. They do. But if you remember, Diane Alexander didn't name Lee as her attacker until five days after her attack, so police didn't know the attacker's identity until July 14, 2002. However, Pamela Kinnamore was kidnapped and murdered on July 12, 2002. This means that the identification came two days late. However, it doesn't explain how Derek Todd Lee's killing spree continued on for another year. On November 21, 2002, 23-year-old Trenisha Denae Collum was standing over the grave of her recently deceased mother, grieving, when she was kidnapped from her mother's burial site. Her body was found three days after she went missing, about 20 miles from where her abandoned car was found in Scott, Louisiana. The autopsy revealed that like the other women who had been murdered, she had been raped and beaten to death. The next year, on March 13, 2013, the decomposing body of a young woman was found in Whiskey Bay, near the same location of Pamela Kinnamore's body in 2002. Carrie Lynn Yoder was living in Baton Rouge when she was kidnapped from her LSU apartment. The autopsy report showed that Carrie had been raped, beaten, and strangled to death. Is any of this sounding familiar? Unlike Pamela Kinnamore's body, which had been carefully placed and hidden, Carrie's body appeared to have been carelessly tossed from a bridge. Carrie Lynn Yoder was Lee's final confirmed victim. I couldn't find much out there about why it took so long to capture Derek Todd Lee, especially since they were armed with a composite sketch, a composite sketch they hadn't yet released to the public until 2003. Maybe the local law enforcement didn't communicate their different findings to each other, or maybe they were thrown off by Lee's different methods of killing. Or maybe the police didn't take Diane Alexander's composite sketch seriously, or maybe they didn't reveal to the public how much they knew because it could alert the killer, I don't know. But one thing is certain, after the 2001 to 2003 murders, the police were so sure that the killer was a white male, they only administered DNA tests to thousands of white men in and around the area of the murders. But because they never got any leads from these DNA tests, they reached out to a DNA company called DNA Print Genomics to assess the DNA left at the many crime scenes. This company generated an ancestry profile, which indicated that the suspect was 85% African. And this discovery changed the course of the investigation in a major way. Now, they knew they were looking for a black male killer. According to court documents, a multi-agency task force had been formed to investigate the slayings of the women in Louisiana. Investigators assigned to the Warner and May Brewer cases from 1992 and 1998 collected a DNA swab years later from Derek Todd Lee on May 5, 2003. Because Lee was considered a suspect in the Warner and May Brewer cases, 
police were allowed to test his DNA sample used for those cases against the DNA evidence collected at the more recent crime scenes of Gina Wilson-Green, Charlotte Murray Pace, Pamela Kinnamore, Trinisha Collum, and Carrie Yoder. The results of the DNA comparison showed that Lee's DNA was consistent with evidence from all five of those murders. On May 26, 2003, a warrant was issued for the arrest of Derek Todd Lee for the first-degree murder and aggravated rape of Carrie Lynn Yoder. The sketch of Lee was released to the public, and the FBI also issued a warrant for his capture. Three days after the sketch was released to the public, there was a major development in the hunt for Derek Todd Lee. In the quaint town of St. Francisville, Louisiana, West Feliciana Sheriff Austin Daniel received a phone call at 10 p.m saying that he needed to assist in the capture of one of his own citizens of St. Francisville, someone who had been living and lurking under the radar for years. In the summer of 2003, task force investigators bursted into the last known residence of Lee in St. Francisville. Police combed through Lee's house as well as his mother's home and his girlfriend's apartment down the street, but the police found nothing in all three homes. It quickly became obvious that Lee's home had been abandoned for quite some time. As police questioned those closest to Derek Todd Lee, they heard all too similar stories, that they were shocked by the brutality of the actions that Lee was accused of. Nikki Brown, a store clerk at a convenience store that Lee frequented said, quote, he was so nice, he talked to everybody. That's why it's so hard to believe he's the serial killer. I still can't believe it, end quote. And when authorities tried to reach out to the mother of Lee's children for help, they were notified that Jackie, the children's mother, abruptly withdrew her children from school. Jackie claimed that they were moving to California. This all happened around the time that Derek Todd Lee was initially swabbed for DNA. After announcing to the public that Derek Todd Lee was the main suspect in these brutal killings, there weren't many places that he could hide, especially since he was a black man suspected of killing multiple white women. Lee first escaped to Chicago and then to Atlanta, where he stayed for a week at a cheap motel. Following a tip, the police soon arrested Derek Todd Lee outside of a tire shop in southwest Atlanta on May 27, 2003. According to the Atlanta police chief, Richard Pennington, Lee did not resist his arrest. Later that week, Lee was extradited back to Louisiana to face his fate in the court system there. Pursuing the cases with the strongest evidence against him, Lee was indicted separately for the murders of Charlotte Marie Pace and Geraldine DeSoto in June 2003. From my research, it isn't exactly made obvious why Lee was never indicted or tried for the murders of the other five women whose cases he was linked to by DNA evidence. All I could gather is that the evidence, for whatever reason, was not strong enough and they didn't want to risk a hung jury, or worse, the jury finding him innocent. In August 2004, a jury found Lee guilty of second-degree murder in the death of Geraldine DeSoto. The deliberation only lasted for two hours. The verdict carried with it a mandatory life sentence. In October of that same year, Lee received a second conviction. He was found guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Charlotte Murray Pace. The case against him was aided by the testimony of survivor Diane Alexander and evidence from the other murders he was accused of committing. The judge sentenced Derek Todd Lee to death by lethal injection in December 2004 following the recommendations of the jury. He was expected to spend the rest of his days on death row at the maximum security Louisiana State Prison in Angola. Unfortunately, Lee didn't live long enough for the state to carry out its sentence. 
He died on January 21, 2016, at the age of 47 from heart disease. Although the news of his death was met with some family members of the victims feeling like justice had been denied to them by the slow-moving legal system, others felt that Lee's death did not ease their pain, but in the end, they were relieved that the case was over. I can't begin to imagine the many conflicted feelings of Lee's untimely death. On one hand, one would have to feel incredible relief that a serial killer, the person responsible for your loved one's death, is gone forever, that they can never hurt another innocent person again. But on the other hand, I can understand feeling devastated that this savage killer never had to endure the consequences of his devious actions. But no matter what, I know we can all sleep a little better at night knowing that Derek Todd Lee can never rape or murder another woman ever again. If you want to interact with the podcast on social media or share with us some of your own theories about the cases, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at the LCL Pod. Don't forget to share the podcast so we can get more attention for these very important cases. If you'd like to listen to more episodes of the Lost Crimes Library, you can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe or follow so you won't miss any new episodes. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.